Good morning to each of you. Good to, to be together again. Good to be together around the Word of God again. We are going to be in Romans chapter 14, and we'll be beginning there in verse 13. It should should have a handout. Um, pretty much the handout's there not so that you feel like you have to read it the whole time, but it's there to make you be able to relax. Pretty much anything that I've uh, passage-wise are there, so you don't have to worry about taking notes for them. You're welcome to take notes along with them, but hopefully it's helpful. Uh, for those online, uh, there's a handout that will be sent over, electronic handouts you can get to as well. Well, um, we are in Romans chapter 14, where uh, Brother Mark was kind enough to lead us uh, last time to the first 12 verses, and so we're going to pick up, and God willing, close out uh, chapter 14 um, with verses 13 through 23. Keep in mind, the book of Romans lays out really nicely in the sense that you have about the first 11 chapters are heavy on the doctrine, the teaching side of it. Paul is laying out a very clear uh, articulation of the Christian gospel, probably the clearest uh, in terms of any of the epistles. Uh, laying out what the gospel is and how it applies. Then you turn a corner in verse 12 and you get onto a lot of application from 12 to the end of the book. So we're in verse uh, chapter 14. So this is more on the application side. But as you'll see, Paul never strays far from doctrine at all. Um, so verse uh, 13 of chapter 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide. Never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable, acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on, on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith, that is sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken. 
we thank you that you have created us as a fiber of our being as humans, created in your image or words. They are what grab our attention. They are how we communicate. They are what separate us from all other creatures. They are what you use to create us. They are what you have used to recreate us in the image of Christ. They are what you have chosen to give us, to guide us in your church as recorded in the scriptures. Father, thank you for the words of the scriptures. Thank you for the spirit who has been at work to pass these down. His service to your church is such a kind service. And so, Father, help us now as we pay attention to these words to give us wisdom, to hear them, to see the incredible call you have called us to live in community, to care about those around us, to care about their faith, to care about mutual upbuilding, to see joy and righteousness and peace established. Teach us, Father, as we dive in, as we look at a situation that happened for a church many years ago, you have decided in your wisdom to make this part of the regular diet of the church, to regularly look at these words. And so, Father, give us wisdom as we do so. We thank you for Jesus Christ, that he has cleansed us from all sin, that he has paid for our ransom that he is the outside righteousness that can bring righteousness to our hearts. We ask now that he would be lifted up in our time together. Thank you, Father, for all of these things. We pray your spirit, he will guide and teach. I'll build your church. Amen. So Gwen and Ed, they were recently married. Gwen's family like her mother's family and many generations before her, they always cook a ham on the second Saturday in December. Ever since Gwen left her parents' home, she's always kept this tradition. So on the second Saturday of December, Ed happened to be in the kitchen as Gwen began the process of preparing the ham. Ed couldn't notice as Gwen lopped off the end of the ham and threw it away. Astonished, Ed asked, Gwen, why did you just cut that part of the ham off and throw it away? It looks perfectly fit to eat. Gwen replied, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Ed, retrieving the ham from the trash can and rinsing it off, said, um, that is not what you're supposed to do. He began to slice the perfectly good ham and eat it and said, please tell me why you think that is what you should do. As the argument continued, Gwen picked up the phone and called her mom to get an explanation as to why she has her pig trimming ways. Mom, I'm cooking a ham and I just chopped off the end and I threw it away. Ed just looked at me like I committed a felony. He wants to know why I did that. Can you please tell him that this is what you're supposed to do? Gwen's mom, much to Gwen's satisfaction acknowledge, yes, that's exactly how you're supposed to do it. And then came the question that you know is going to come from Ed. Why? Why are you supposed to do that? Now, both Gwen and her mom felt under attack. So Gwen's mom said, well, let me just call your mom. I'll, I'll call you right back. 
Gwen's mom reached Gwen's grandmother and explained the situation. She also affirmed that you're supposed to trim the end of the ham. That is the proper way that you do it. But she had no further explanation than that's how we've always done it. Within moments, Gwen's grandmother had on the phone her mother, Gwen's great-grandmother. She explained the situation, especially her certainty that this is the proper way, but they just couldn't remember why. Why do we do that? Well, you'll be surprised to know that Gwen's great-grandmother asked back, why would you ever do that? And she said, because that's what you do. And she responded, well, the only reason I do that is because my roasting pan is way too short to fit a ham in. Well, I like this story a whole lot. Actually, if you've been around me much, you've probably heard this repeated a lot. It's one of my favorites. Um, it's a terrific example of how failing to understand the reason behind doing something um, or not doing something can lead to some very unreasonable consequences. It's also a great example of how marriage often stirs up some of the oddities of various family tr traditions, especially here in the West, because we don't all have the same traditions uh, and they can vary quite a bit from family to family. And in case you didn't know it, churches often are like mixing families in this regard. As people from different backgrounds and traditions covenant together in membership, they often bring with them different types of assumptions and expectations, and this can lead to strife. But it also is a wonderful opportunity to work out some questions together to seek deeper answers and to also display peace and joy together. Further, it can be an opportunity as we seek those answers to dip, dig deeper into Scripture. Here, in this passage, you're going to see Paul masterfully probe assumptions. All the while, he'll encourage peace. He'll encourage self-sacrifice. And he'll probe at the logic of Christian doctrine. So as you move into verse 13 of chapter 14, let me remind you of the circumstances surrounding uh, the chapter. So in pagan worship, it was very common practice to offer wine as a sacrifice unto the pagan god to appease him. Also common practice was to offer meat uh, as a sacrifice and a prayer to God. Then after the ritual is over, the wine would be sell, sold on the market and the meat would also be sold on the market. This was so prevalent, especially in Rome, that it was almost impossible to purchase wine that had not been first offered to some idol. And similarly, if you bought meat, you could pretty much assume that it had been offered to an idol. So given these challenges, many Christians followed a conservative line of thinking whereby they avoided all wine and all meat. Now, I want to be very careful as we go through this chapter. That's the circumstance that we're talking about. It's going to be very helpful that you understand it. It's going to be helpful to see how Paul unpacks it because the what that he's talking about here, what you should do is a lot less valuable as to the why, why you should do it this way. 
Um, I also want to tell you, this is not a chapter about what to do with alcohol or whether or not Christians should eat meat, because it's not actually talking about that specifically, because most of us aren't dealing with a situation where we have um, a meat being offered to an idol or wine being offered to an idol. So it's not applicable straightforwardly in that way. So understand their situation, understand why, how Paul applies it. But the key, the hope, the, I mean, all the value is in the why question. Why does he do that? While some Christians took the conservative approach, others, they didn't. So while one group thought it wrong to eat the meat or drink the wine, the other group saw no problem at all. And you can imagine scenarios where two believers holding different positions might find themselves in the home of a pagan who's serving both meat and wine. One brother refuses while the other brother enjoys. Now you can imagine there would be tension between the two. One surprised by his brother's abstinence, the other surprised by his brother's indulgence. So in the opening verse of chapter 14, in verse 3, we were told, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed them. So basically, Paul exhorts both believers to avoid judging the other believer. Paul offers a helpful summary of this in verse 13. Of, I think of all those 13 chapters or verses, he summarizes it like this. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's the summary. That's what he's saying. Don't pass judgment one or the other. And whatever you do, don't put a stumbling block in front of your brother. So while Paul offers correction to both of those who abstain and to those who indulge in the first half of the chapter, what you're going to see in the second half of the chapter is he's going to focus his attention on the one who indulges. This is the key. The manner in which Paul deals with the one who indulges will actually give us an insight into the very workings of Christianity. You might expect that Paul, an apostle, would identify with the brothers who think the meat and the wine are not good to eat. But Paul clearly identifies with those that believe that there's nothing wrong with the meat and the wine. In fact, early in chapter 4, in the opening verses, he characterizes those that believe that meat and wine to be bad, he characterizes them as the weaker brethren. In the first verse of chapter 15, Paul identifies his position with those who he refers to as the strong, those who do not believe that meat and wine are bad. So Paul is addressing those who, like himself, understand that there are no current prohibitions on Christians eating the meat or drinking the wine. In verse 14 and 15, he offers an explanation of why he believes they should give up eating meat or drinking wine if it is necessary to help their weaker brothers. This is so key to understanding this chapter. This chapter is less about drinking wine and eating meat than it is why. Why is it that we should maybe give up the drinking of the wine in this situation or the eating of the meat? To help other brothers. That's the key. This is helpful. 
Because Paul doesn't just say, just do what I tell you to do. I love this about Christianity. If you haven't read any other religious text, you really need to try it. And you're going to find out how different the Bible is than all the other religious texts. The other religious texts go on like this. Do it because I said so. That is not the scriptures. They spend all, there's so much time in the scriptures doing what? Telling us why. Helping us understand. That is great. It's so kind. So instead, Paul explains this. In particular, he gives three reasons, and here they are. First, Paul affirms there's nothing wrong with eating meat and drinking wine in itself. That's going to be his mo that's going to be the one we spend the most time on. It's a robust argument. Second, Paul explains if someone's conscience is bothered, it would be wrong for them to indulge. Finally, given those two together, Paul argues that since eating meat and drinking wine may be wrong for some brothers, then Christian love requires careful attention around subjective issues like eating drink, eating meat and drinking wine. So as we dig into the why questions here together, would you stop and just ponder for a moment how kind it is of God? to give us the why? He doesn't have to do that. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to hear anything from him at all. But not only does he tell us what to do, but he's kind enough to tell us why to do it. So first, Paul explains that the reason the strong should be willing to abstain from eating meat or, drink, or, eating meat or drinking wine is not because there's anything wrong with eating meat or drinking wine. Paul affirms there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. He says this very clearly in verse 14. I know and I am persuaded. See the, the double emphasis? In the Lord Jesus. Now he throws down some authority. You're talking about putting some authority on it. In the Lord Jesus. That nothing, nothing, that is a massive claim, is unclean in itself. Now, that might not seem like a major statement to us, but it's a massive statement to Paul. Paul grew up completely keeping the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament as laid out in places like Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. He would have avoided most meats. He would have avoided any wine unless he was completely sure of its origin. Now, this same Paul is saying that he is fully persuaded that no meat, no wine is in itself unclean. We don't have time to fully trace what a big deal this is, but suffice it to say that in the Torah, Moses explicitly laid out certain foods that were allowed and certain ones that were forbidden. This was a huge deal to the Israelites. If you doubt this, then just think of the book of Daniel. And think about what about Daniel and his friends and keeping the dietary laws. These four young followers of God risked their lives in order to have vegetables versus meat and not to indulge in wine because they've been offered to idols. That's what exactly what's going on in Daniel. It's the exact same thing we're talking about here. Read through the Gospels and see how often the issue of food comes up. Everything in the Gospel points to Jesus always keeping the dietary laws. And still, 
He's hounded by the Pharisees about food. It's crazy. He's asked about how his disciples gather food, where they gather food. Did they wash their hands? Did they not wash their hands? How they washed their hands? With whom did they eat? Whom did they not eat? The first major theological council is recorded in Acts 15. It's not about the Trinity. It's not about Nicaea. I mean, Nicaea. It's not about the incarnation. It is uh, it's not about divine election. One of the major things is about food. What do we eat? So this is not a small issue. It's a very big issue. Paul wants to be clear that he is not saying that Christians should keep the dietary laws of the Old Testament. He is instead fully affirming that the dietary laws of the Old Testament are no longer binding. Again, you got to be, if you're Paul, you are shocked that you're actually writing that down. You could never imagine yourself ever eating the forbidden meat, more or less telling other people they should. So it raises an important question. Why are we able to so easily lay aside the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament? We just let them go. If these restrictions were such a big deal, I've always thought about this. How are you going to explain this to Daniel and his friends when we get to heaven? Oh, yeah, we, did, we, we, we drink the wine, we eat the meat, it's no big deal. <laughs> we about died for that. Like, we were willing to risk our necks, and you all just let it go. No big deal. Well, why? Well, as Paul alluded to in verse 14, Jesus himself is the one who taught us this. In Matthew 15, verse 10, a shocking statement comes across the lips of Jesus, and it would have caused major chaos. He called the people to him, and he said, this is Matthew 15, verse 10, it should be in your handout. Hear and understand. It is not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This is what defiles a person. So nothing going in your mouth can defile you. This is Jesus declaring it's all okay. What? Remember, Peter was there. He heard that, but it obviously didn't take so much. He had to have a dream and a lot of drama to get Peter in Acts 10 to finally go, okay, 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 we'll eat the pig. Basically, basically Jesus says substances are not sinful. Humans are sinful. There is no sinful plant. There is no sinful animal. Sin is a distinctly human problem. Sin has certainly affected all of creation. But at its core, it's a human problem. And no plant, no animal would have ever suffer the consequences of sin had it not been for humans succumbing. Paul explains this in Romans 5 when he explained that death and disorder entered into creation when sin entered into creation. It was by humans that sin entered. So substances, substances are not sinful in and of themselves. Humans are sinful. It's a major Christian point. 
Well, why did God ever give dietary laws? And then why did he take them away? If there's no such thing as a bad substance, then why did he ever say this? People eat this and don't eat that. I promise you. I, I was, as I was writing this, I was picturing this conversation between God and Daniel. Well, okay, I got a question. Um, well, God gave them in order to define his special people. Knowing that food, like language, is a major part of culture, God helped keep the Israelites together, especially during things like the exile, through their restrictive dietary laws. Daniels and his friends were actually great examples of how this works and why it works, even when they're separated from their special land, even when they are separated from the temple where the presence of God dwelt, even when they're separated from their fellow countrymen. They were able to identify with their special status as the people of God by what? By keeping the dietary laws. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, he promises that a helper is going to come to the people of God who's going to be a personal, internal witness as to the status of who the people of God are. That third person witness is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The dietary laws could be laid aside because the Holy Spirit was now present. Some prohibitions, such as the Ten Commandments, will never be laid aside because they protect humans from inherently sinful behavior. But others, like the dietary laws and the laws about sacrifices, can be laid aside as soon as God declared them is no longer necessary. Another way to put it, that is, God did not have to declare, do not murder or do not lie to make those acts sinful. He didn't have to declare that to make that wrong. But eating pork, that became sinful the moment God declared it to be wrong. In the same way, in Acts 10, when God told Peter to pick it up and eat it, pork went from being unclean to being clean as soon as God declared it. Again, God's words have power. So Paul wants to be clear that he fully affirms that neither the meat nor the wine are unclean. He repeats the point in verse 20 when he, when he restates that everything is indeed clean. He affirms that a person can enjoy eating these substances in a righteous manner. In verse 22, he says, the faith, that belief that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Here he is saying that if God has given someone a faith that's strong enough to overcome their upbringing, that taught them that these substances are wrong, they should keep that faith. They should not lose that belief. They should enjoy it as a blessing given from God and to be enjoyed with God. This is a big deal to understanding the logic of the Christian gospel. Christianity is the only one of the three Abrahamic religions that offer no dietary restrictions. The other two, take Orthodox Jews, they still have to follow the kosher laws of Judaism. Muslims follow laws similar to the kosher laws in addition to only halal meats. Which, what is halal meat? Well, halal meat is... Go right back to what we're talking about. It's a meat that when it, when the animal was killed, somebody said in praise to Allah. That's the only difference between a halal chicken and a non-halal chicken is when the halal chicken 
was slaughtered, somebody said, praise be to Allah. All right, there you go. Um, and in response was my pleasure. All right, anyway. Um, but, the, but the Christian gospel teaches that we are not made unclean by anything we put in our mouths. Just think about that. No other Abrahamic religion teaches that. That's what we believe. There's nothing you put in your mouth that will make you unclean. Hold on, this is key. Because the rest of them miss this completely. We don't believe you can put anything in your mouth that will make you unclean because we believe your heart is already unclean on its own. There's not enough food that we could avoid that would heal our hearts of our sin problem. The Christian gospel teaches that I don't need something from the outside to make me unclean. I am unclean because of the evil of my heart. Instead, I need something from the outside to come make me clean. I need a sacrifice to make me clean. Only the Son of God slain on a cross whose blood counted for my wickedness could ever cleanse me of my sin. And this is why the Lord's Supper is such a fitting, beautiful ritual for the Christian experience. While Jesus declared that no substance would make us unclean and we're free to eat from any substance, he also commanded us to regularly gather and partake of the bread and the cup. These remind us that while we need not ingest any substance to make us unclean, we need to regularly partake of Christ in order to make us clean. As we consume Christ our Lord, we are made clean. We are made righteous by consuming the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect son of God, as seen in the bread. We are made pure by consuming the purification that comes from his sacrifice as seen in the cup. Nothing makes us unclean and only the sacrifice and the righteousness of Jesus could ever make us clean. Now we move to the second reason why Paul believes that stronger believers should give up meat, eating meat or drinking wine if necessary to help their weaker brothers. He says this in the second half of verse 14. I know I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is clean in itself, comma, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So while Paul affirms that no substance is unclean in itself, he goes further to explain that a substance may be unclean, unclean for someone who thinks it's unclean. Wait, is Paul agreeing with our postmodern culture that likes to quip, you know, you go do you and I'll do me. What's good for you? That'll be good with me. No. To hear him say that, that's to mishear him. Paul affirms a Christian belief that an act that is not naturally wrong may still be wrong if the action violates someone's conscience. If an action is not wrong, but doing so makes me feel as if I'm sinning or doing something wrong, then it's wrong for me to violate my conscience. This is a far cry from moral relativism. Moral relativism teaches that each person, 
or each culture, they can just decide what's right and wrong. We see the effects of such moral relativism running wild in our culture that feels that they can simply declare something that is now permissible, that used to not be permissible. Paul is not declaring anything like that. I say that to say there are people who look at this passage and try to support such silliness. I don't mean to be rude, but just read it again. How a person feels about an impermissible act can never make it a permissible act. How a person feels about an impermissible act can never make it a permissible act. So a child can't smack her sibling. That'd be an impermissible act. Just want to make sure everybody knows that. And say she feels great about it, and therefore it just becomes a permissible act. But how a person feels about a permissible act can make that act an impermissible act. So while Paul has declared that eating meat or drinking wine are both permissible acts, he clearly explains that they may not be permissible if the one doing them can't feel right in his conscience about them. He supports this notion in verse 16 when he says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Well, who cares what somebody says, whether it's right or not? If it's right, it's right. No, not necessarily. You can do something that is right and someone may, even in good charity, see it to be wrong. Paul is saying that for Christians, the issue of food could be a big deal. He says this in verse 20, do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Well, how could that be? I mean, you just said there's nothing unclean about food. And now you're telling me don't let food destroy the work of God. Which is it? How can it be both permissible and, in, and harmful? Paul explains in verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith, that is sin. God has placed the Holy Spirit within the heart of believers. The Spirit convicts of sin. The Christian holds that if we cannot do something with a clear conscience, then we must go ahead and treat that, no matter if it's permissible, as if it is impermissible. Here, why? Why does this make sense? Well, not... So people, people not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, these would be unbelievers, they can and they do still have a conscience. Folks, that's an incredible, gracious gift of God. That is that even unbelievers have a conscience. This is what we call common grace. This is part of the Noahic covenant. When God promised he's not going to flood the whole world again. Well, the only way that he could not flood the whole world again, as he had to restrain evil. And the way that he does that is he gives most humans a conscience whereby we feel bad about things. The problem is our consciences are also polluted with sin, and so they are by no means always correct. Further exacerbating the problem is that we often just ignore our conscience. Even when it is right, we ignore it if it warns us. So when a person becomes a believer, and receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, now the third person of the Trinity is beginning to show him a, a lot more things. And he becomes a lot more aware of sin. It doesn't keep us from sinning always, but it means that we will become aware of it more quickly and more acutely. 
The same tendencies remain so long as the flesh remains. That is, folks can still ignore their conscience and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So all that said, Christians would never affirm the notion of just follow your conscience. Never. But we would say, if your conscience is bothered, then you should certainly go check it out. So Christians will never affirm that we should do just go do what feels right. But we understand that as broken creatures, we have malformed consciences that err. If something is wrong, it is wrong no matter how we feel about it. Let me say it again. If something's wrong, it's wrong no matter how we feel about it. Yet, if something is permissible, like eating meat or drinking wine, but we cannot get our conscience to stop alarming about it, Paul's teaching here is, well, then go ahead and continue to teach it as if it's wrong or treat it as if it's wrong. So while wine and meat are not wrong in themselves, is consuming them bothers the conscience, it becomes wrong for the one to whom the conscience is bothered. All right. Last point. Third point. Third part of the argument. Since eating and drinking may be wrong for some brothers, then Christian love requires careful attention around subjective issues like eating meat and drinking wine. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Paul floods us in this passage with different restatements of exactly that, but that is such a key. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Verse 17 through 19, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable with God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So Paul says that the kingdom of God is not concerned chiefly with eating and drinking, but the kingdom of God is majorly concerned with righteousness. The kingdom of God is concerned with peace. The kingdom of God is concerned with joy. If you're eating and you're drinking, make your brother to stumble in righteousness. There is no meat good enough. There is no wine sweet enough to warrant that. If eating meat will sacrifice the peace of the family, then folks, veggie up. He finishes his triad of virtues by saying the kingdom of God is found in joy in the Holy Spirit. He defines this by saying that joy in the Holy Spirit is derived from service unto Christ and fellow believers. Someone once said that the recipe for Christian joy can be found by treating joy as an acronym. J, Jesus first. O, others second. And Y, yourself last. When life is taken in that order, joy will be realized. Paul continues this into chapter 15, which will be picked up next time. But I want you to see how he's tying it together. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear. Do you see that word obligation? To bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's exactly what he's talking about. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. Basically, Christians fall, follow in the footsteps of Jesus when they put others ahead of themselves. 
But doesn't it all just go back to chapter 13, verse 8, when he says this shocking statement? I loved how helpful, so helpful. And Paul, when Mark was preaching that message and he said, this is so hard to hear because it's so hard to follow. He was talking about chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So we all owe everyone here something. I don't like feeling like that. I don't like feeling like I owe you anything. It says here, I owe every one of you something. I owe you to love you. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot that we owe each other. Basically, you could sum up chapter uh, 14 with this. You may eat or drink wine, but you must, you may eat or drink wine, but you always must love your brother. If you return back to the story, the ham story, it actually is, it's a legend of a story in the business world because it, it points out how we can be out with the old and in with the new. We just got to figure out what we can cut off, um, no pun intended. But, you know, it's funny. I think the Christian version might have a little bit different take on this. It may be in the Christian version of the story that Ed, after hearing all the phone calls and all the ruckus, the very next year comes into his wife and says, you know what? Give me the knife. She takes it and he lops off the end of the ham and he throws it away. And she says, what are you doing? We established that that's crazy. And he looks at her and says, for every year from now on, I want you to think of your great-grandmother and your grandmother and your mother and what they did. And I want you to look at it and say, why did we do that silly thing? But boy, I love them like crazy. I'm not going to eat that. It never tastes good enough for us to remember what all they've given us in our lives. Wouldn't that be the bore Christian end of it? I don't care about the meat. I don't care about the wine. If it bothers you, let it go. I just want you to be okay. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness. The kindness of your word, it's unbelievable. The kindness to give it to us, it's really unbelievable. But there's so much more kindness. We can look around us and see the treat of Christian community that you saved us to be with others. We can look and see how God is working in their lives. How Jesus, the truth of Jesus, is so real. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the right priorities about the right things and to owe one another love. To figure out, how do I love you well? How do I care for you well? See the priority that Christ, our Lord, put on that. We ask your blessings for our time in your word. We trust that your will will be done by it. In your name we pray. Amen.